Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky. I'd like to welcome you to August 2021's AJT Highlights. Joined today, as always, by Dr. Roz Manon from the University of Nebraska. And we have our AJT Editorial Fellow this month is Andriana Nikolova, who is a cardiologist at Cedar sinai I'd like to welcome both of you. And um, why don't we dive right into the papers this month. These, remember, these are all the editor's choice uh, for that month in AJT. And there are five articles. Um, so we've got a pretty heavy load this month, but nevertheless, really excellent papers. So Andriana is going to start off with a paper by Herzl et al. entitled Natural Influenza Infection Produces a Greater Diversity of Humoral Responses Than Vaccination in Immunosuppressed Transplant Recipients. And there's a paired editorial from Gardner and Sester. And then uh, Andriana will review Kate's et al. paper entitled The Limits of Refusal, an Ethical Review of Solid Organ Transplantation and Vaccine Hesitancy. Very relevant these days. Then Roz will do two articles, um, the first being Hostetler, Immunity to Varicella, Measles and Mumps in Patients Evaluated for Lung Transplantation with an editorial from Meyer and Avery and then go into um, Call's paper on uh, entitled Donor to Recipient Transmission of SARS-CoV-2 by Lung Transplantation Despite Negative Donor Upper Respiratory Tract Testing with a review or editorial from La Hose et al. And then I will finish with a paper from Kasaragi et al. entitled Third-Party Bone Marrow-Derived Mesenchymal Stromal Cell Infusion before liver transplantation, a randomized control trial. So without further ado, um, Andriana, I'd like to welcome you to start discussing the first article. Thank you, Dr. Lovitsky. It's a real pleasure to be part of this very intellectually stimulating podcast. So the first paper by Herzl and colleagues compares the immune response repertoire between natural influenza A infection versus vaccination in immunosuppressed solid organ transplant recipients. I thought this is such a timely topic in the setting of the pandemic because could influenza virus really be a prototype for studying immune response breadth in a rapidly mutating and a highly contagious virus. We know already that the solid organ transplant recipients mounted diminished immune response to both natural infection and vaccination. Uh, but how broad are these responses? And I think this study does a good job of employing some interesting techniques in characterizing this. Just as a little background, in the setting of influenza A infection, most of the prior studies in immune, immunocompetent hosts focus on characterizing response particularly to the hemagglutinin in proteins because their antigenically highly variable membrane proteins and antibodies to them correlate with protection from infection. But in this study, the researchers really characterized the breadth of the immune response by using very um, customized microarray assays, which span a remarkable diverse collection of influenza antigens, in total 86 of them, including those from various subtypes and geographical locations. And their cohort consists of immunosuppressed transplant patients, 40 of which were infected with the influenza A type H1N1. 40 patients were infected with influenza A H3N2 type, and they compared them to 40 vaccinated transplant 
one patient. And they drew samples at enrollment and four weeks after. And almost half of their cohort were kidney transplant recipients with very similar immunosuppression profile among the groups with a median time from transplant to either infection or vaccination about three years in all groups. And the figure one of the manuscript really depicts very nicely the dichotomy and the immunological diversity between the natural infection as compared to the vaccination. The natural infection elicited very kind of robust and very diverse antibody response compared to the vaccinated patients. And this response was primarily directed uh, towards the antigens of the corresponding influenza A subtype, in particular towards the hemagglutinin in protein or a subunit thereof. And there's of course minority of patients who mount response to other conserved antigens or heterosubtypic uh, antigens. And these results, I thought, were not surprising because split virus vaccines as used in this study are uh, based on denatured and purified antigens. And actually, the only content in these vaccines that is really standardized is the amount of hemagglutinin proteins. So that's why even in immunocompetent hosts, Vaccines with these split virus vaccines elicit very narrow response to vaccination and the results of this uh, study really mirror um, what occurs in immunocompetent hosts. But they thought it would be very nice to have included a study in this study, a comparator group of probably immunocompetent hosts to really compare kind of the relative differences um, in the two. Now, an added uh, layer of complexity, I thought, is in conducting a study of this type is the inability to control for the exposure history of individuals, uh, such as were the patients in this study routinely vaccinated with the annual flu vaccine? Have they ever previously contracted the flu? And the reason is that the breadth of the response induced by influenza infection mainly depends on the exposure and vaccination history of the individuals. And this phenomenon is called the original antigenic sin. Another challenge I feel like in studies like that is that there are no antibody cutoffs that clearly define protection from disease. So um, typically a titer of 1 to 40 is commonly used for vaccine-associated seroprotection. But, you know, was were the differences that the, the authors noted uh, for their study um, and of course they saw kind of a relatively lower response in vaccinated patients but does this imply lack of clinical protection or still confirm so, some clinical uh, protection would be very interesting to know and of course lastly these studies do not provide information about the durability of the immune response because they examine only two time points at infection or vaccination and four weeks later but regarding this study I thought was uh, very interesting to kind of broader our thinking and provide future directions for studying broader vaccine responses and could we perhaps use in the future higher dose vaccines or adjuvant vaccines or recombinant influx of vaccines to kind of broaden the immune response but very interesting paper overall i was curious uh, thanks andrian i was curious uh as the sort of elephant in the room is the relationship of this to covid um obviously this is a, a key question is natural immunity versus vaccine-induced immunity, particularly immunosuppressed. Do you think this is similar enough or, or different uh, to extrapolate any of this to COVID infection? Yeah, I thought 
indeed it's such a timely topic and that's what i was thinking the whole time and in studying kind of the immune responses to the covid infection i feel like our understanding is as good as our tools are and again we have the similar challenges that studying the immune response in covid is limited by what antibodies we test and it's so this is really great platform to kind of potentially use such microarray techniques to study the breadth of the immune response and really see what it is because the recent new england journal of medicine article shows us that two doses of the vaccine are probably not enough in the majority of transplant recipients but again based on the available techniques that we use and so it'd be great to a little bit delve into the breadth of the immune response it's certainly interesting that it was submitted and accepted and impressed before COVID became a major issue. And likewise, the editorial by Martina Sester and Barbara Gartner also talks about, you know, COVID responses from vaccine in February, you know, of this more recent year. So I, I, in some ways, I'm not like surprised, like I've heard some of these results in, in presentations and it does sort of maybe mimic what we're seeing that that COVID, you know, that transplant recipients that survive have these very most likely have broad responses, although we haven't really studied them very well. But certainly the vaccinated patients, even with, you know, an mRNA vaccine, don't seem to have very robust IgG, at least a spike. But we'll see. Great. Well, thanks, uh, Andriana. Do, can you go ahead and move to the Kate's paper? Yeah, so very naturally follows kind of the the next paper by Kate and colleagues on the topic of the right or wrong of refusing to undergo vaccination as an organ transplant recipient in the context of public policy. So again, in the context of the COVID pandemic, this dialogue on the interplay of personal autonomy with our duty to protect the community well-being in the context of our vaccine acceptance has really resurfaced as a central topic, both in the press, in our own living rooms, and this is even more poignant in the context of scarcely available resources, such as a donor organ. And the OPTN, which is the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network, leaves it up to the individual centers to adopt specific policies that address how lifestyle choices, such as tobacco, alcohol, illicit drug use, religious practices, such as being a Jehovah's Witness and refusing blood transfusions, must be addressed prior to listing. So should willingness to be vaccinated be considered in this same category of variables, or should we adopt a strict mandate for vaccinations in all transplant candidates? And the others examine nicely both sides of the coin. So their arguments in favor of adoption of a policy allowing denial of solid organ transplant on the basis of vaccine refusal include the following. First, the risk to the recipient. Of course, the transplant recipients are at greater risk for vaccine preventable illnesses, and they usually have more severe disease course and outcomes. And of course, they could argue that vaccine refusal could be a marker of general medical non-compliance to other therapies. Then there is the risk to others by refusing vaccines, these patients confer greater risk of transmission to other solid organ transplant patients or even to the community outside of the institution. And this can um, also bring in a lot of legal repercussions for centers because they're tracked on individual outcomes, transmissions and exposures and could potentially lead to temporary shutdowns of transplant centers. And of course, it is well known that there are certain vaccine preventable illnesses that are associated with the risks of graft failure. So proponents of this argument um, can 
say that this practice would mimic other public health situations in which infringement of personal autonomy is ethically permissible and legally mandated in order to protect the well-being of the population, similarly to the tobacco policy. But opponents to this argument um, can say, well, uh, are we crossing truly a moral boundary with such a refusal? Um, especially because in modern medicine, such preventable vaccine, uh, vaccine preventable illnesses are associated with lower mortality, probably and much uh, more benign course, given kind of all the available treatment options. And remembering our Hippocratic oath, the price to pay for refusing life-saving therapy to patients declining vaccination is very high. And how do we really compare uh, such patients to other listed patients for transplantation who are unable to receive vaccination due to medical reasons or do not uh, mount sufficient immune response to vaccines? So where is the moral justice in kind of delineating these groups of of people. Also, it hasn't really panned out the theory that the vaccine refusing patients might be less compliant with other medical therapies. This is really needs to be proven. Additionally, vaccine refusal differs by racial, ethnic, socioeconomic and religious lines. And if we kind of um, adopt a very hardline policy in this regard, we might alienate such groups even further. That component is very much at play. And of course, there's the special types and circumstances. For example, we're allowing the emergent transplantation of patients with palminant liver failure from alcohol use when patients have not had the chance to demonstrate commitment to abstinence. Uh, so is this situation mimicking something like that? Uh, what about innocent children who are denied uh, the right of life-saving transplant because of beliefs of their parents? Um, again, very ethical and moral dilemma. And in the context of living donor transplantation, the donors should certainly should be educated on the possibility of adverse outcomes resulting from the recipient's refusal to accept vaccination. So in order for us to move towards a streamlined national policy or guidance documents, I believe we should really uh, dig in deeper into the magnitude of the, the problem. For example, what is the prevalence of non-vaccination among candidates for transplantation? And more specifically, what percentage of these non-vaccinated patients are attributable to refusal based on personal beliefs rather than for medical reasons? And uh, certainly digging deeper into the reasons provided by such patients for vaccine refusals, um, those could be opportunities for educational campaigns uh, led by specialists, including ID doctors, psychologists, etc. So we've got also so probably have greater transparency around the current institutional practices regarding vaccines prior to transplantation as well. So I think after we assemble all of this evidence, we can probably begin the process of more of a guidance or policy development, but we still need a lot more background um, gathering and data before that, I think. Yeah, so this is, uh, you did a great job in, in uh, reviewing both sides of the coin here. I, I think it's a such a difficult uh, politically potentially charged issue and certainly i really like the fact that you mentioned education because i, th I think some of some of the information that reason pe people are refusing is mouth are they're, they're misinformed about the vaccines um, similar similar to you know referrals for transplant in certain communities who are hesitant of the you know the, the medical community and doctors uh, in about in in 
terms of transplantation. There's a long history of that. So I, I think it's a real opportunity for for education and an understanding of the reasons for refusal on an individual basis. It, it, it's really hard, though, I think, to, to come to a consensus here or a mandate. Uh, I don't know. What do you what do you think, Roz? I, I think it'd be quite hard. The figure one is great because it outlines this uh, sort of a detail of how you would create a proposed net, uh, framework for a network, you know, for a national guideline. And, you know, it's it's quite a bit of work and we're already behind. And um, I do think that once you have a guideline, you're sort of obligated to go to that and it's difficult to make exceptions. So, you know, right now we're sort of advising patients on the waiting list to be vaccinated and, and really encouraging it. But I, I like the point where you say there's nothing to be said. There's no we don't know if refusal of vaccination equals non-adherence. It's this is not, hey, take your antihypertensive. This is this is such a politically charged issue and with a lot of misinformation. And and I, I certainly saw personally a lot more people signing up at the grocery store and CBS this weekend getting vaccinated as they heard the numbers going up. So nice analysis, nice discussion and get the readers to take a look at this for sure. Great. Well, uh, Roz, dude, now we're moving on to immunity well, to uh, measles, mumps, varicella. Yeah. This is um, the Haley Hostetler paper from from the Duke uh, Lung Transplant and ID programs. And this is a red alert to those uh, transplant ID fellows that haven't been considering doing the um, fellowship for the American Journal of Transplant. We could have used you today. <laughs> so that's that's my plug for um, more fellows applying. But um, Andrea, you did a nice job. So just as a um, uh, as a, you know, transplant ID naivete, you know, I'm a not really a real doc. I'm just making believing I am. This paper really um, highlights, again, in the vaccine realm, sort of the outcomes of live vaccination in a trans in a patient population with end stage lung failure, organ failure. Uh, and there certainly are guidelines from the AST and ISHLT for recipient screening for vaccines that involve live vaccinate, live attenuated vaccines. And remember that those are ones we can't give post-transplant because they can replicate. And there's also concerns that immunity wanes with organ failure and obviously, uh, you know, what happens long term after a transplant. But certainly from a preventive uh, perspective, it's felt best that individuals be immunized prior to transplant. And in the lung field, for example, there's really no consistent um, data. So this paper really tries to fill that void. It was a retrospective analysis of uh, 1,200 plus uh, evals done at the Duke Lung Transplant Program over a two and a half year period. 95 of these uh, eval patients were excluded because they didn't have titers recorded. Um, and they created a standardized serology recommendation for what was considered positive for both uh, VZV, measles, and mumps. And they identified the patient population using age groups, but not not age groups based on uh, years of age, but really thinking about the vaccination policies that existed. So greater than 1954 being prior to the availability of live vaccine, live attenuated vaccines for these diseases from 54 to 70, where there was an introduction of, of these vaccines. I know as a kid, I know I got them. And then after 1970, and let me go right to the results. Uh, basically, this, this large cohort of patients had a mean age of 62, 58% were male, 78% uh, Caucasian, uh, native lung disease primarily, and about 60% were smokers. 
What they found essentially is that in um, that in their recipients, four percent did not have detectable VZV responses, and ten percent had no measles response, and about fourteen percent had no mumps response. And then they tried to evaluate what were the associations with the lack of response and. I would say that the younger group of individuals, those um, that were born after 1970, tended to have the lower responses. And in fact, the odds ratio of an undetected response was uh, was five for VZV, about 15 for measles, and about three for mumps compared to 65 years and older. Um, and they drilled down more on this result that it, there appeared to be an association with cystic fibrosis that those patients have for the primary disease had a lower proportion of detectable positive BZV and measles, but the, and the numbers, I think that population of numbers was quite smaller. They didn't see associations with race or the presence of diabetes. And again, there was no association with BMI, for example, but I think the vast majority of evaluations that they did had a detectable vaccine, but it was really the younger CF patients that had the higher rate of undetectable titers. And so that kind of brings in the question of like, why is that? And they compare and mention a, a liver study where by Gardner et al., where there are younger patients, again, predominantly appear to be unvaccinated or, or not unvaccinated, take that back, have lower vaccine responses. And then a Hawker kidney PED study that showed about 25% of children with kidney failure do not have detectable responses to live vaccines. So, I think it kind of raises some questions. Um, first of all, that younger folks with organ failure may have blunted immune responses. There is no control cohort of un, you know, health, otherwise healthy, but um, non-organ failure patients to see what their responses would be, like, for example, myself. And of course, obviously, the implications for the outcomes for COVID-19 vaccine were not lost on me. There's a nice editorial by uh, Robin Avery, and colleague um, Keith Meyer, they actually have a nice table showing the three, uh, the four diseases: measles, mumps, rubella, and BCB. Um, the etiology of the disease, the potential complications from the disease, and then the vaccine efficacy, which is extremely high for all these live attenuated. It's in the seventy-five to ninety-five percent. And again, they were not really sure that even in the absence of these detectable antibody-mediated of responses that maybe there was some immunologic memory or some latent T cell memory. And it wasn't clear if their findings in the Duke study were really related to some kind of CF specific issue. You know, if they're seronegative, do you re-immunize? That was their kind of thought. And so certainly the recommendation here is that uh, individuals should be screened, at least in the lung population for MMWR. Uh, and then vaccination pre-transplant rather than, you know, obviously avoiding it post-transplant. Yeah, I think that's a sensible approach. Um, obviously, with an increased number of children who are unvaccinated in the last several decades, you know, who could transmit measles and mumps to one of these uh, recipients is it's a big issue potentially. But obviously, and obviously, once they've been transplanted, they can't get live vaccines except it can get the killed 
varicella vaccination. Right, right. Uh, and you know, uh, I mean, I mean, I've seen disseminated VZV, and it's not pretty. And 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 I've had you know a couple of patients that have had terrible outcomes. But um, but certainly with the rise of things like mumps and measles, didn't we have a measles outbreak? You know, before COVID everything would made the news that was virus and we had those outbreaks and and patients were saying oh should i cancel my trip to disney world and or disneyland and the answer was yes if you haven't been vaccinated it does put you sort of at at a in a risk category but again it kind of goes back to why didn't you you know so one did you get vaccinated this you know these studies indicated that these patients probably did but uh again maybe there's a disease specific lack of immunity, associated immunity with, say, CF, or whether this was related to uh, a decline in the immunological response over time because you had organ failure. Yeah, I, I was wondering, uh, also, it just made me think, do they have lack of immunity to all of the other viruses out there, or you know, the other vaccinations we routinely give, and, you know, Hep B and Hep A, and tetanus, et cetera. Yeah, they didn't um, comment on, yeah, they didn't yeah. comment on that. I guess their thought was, well, you know, those are ones you could give pre-transplant or post-transplant. Sure. You yeah. know, we, um, we don't have a, um, a vaccine clinic here. We're sort of in, in kidney world. I, I think we're probably the laxest of all the organs where we, you know, I think lung and heart, I think are much, much more, you know, on this than we are in, in kidney space. And that's not to say we're, you know, uncaring, but I think we, you know, we don't think about this in the context of their long-term, you know, clinical stability. I also wonder if these patients, uh, the CF patients, just have general hypogammaglobulinemia and maybe that's kind of contributing to it. So it would be nice to dig deeper into the T-cell response and know if they have kind of higher higher rate of um, of contracting these vaccine-preventable diseases in general, maybe they have some T-cell responses protecting them as well. Yeah, the only way they kind of address that is they excluded 16 individuals that were getting IVIG, who I presume were detected to be hypogamma. But, uh, I, you know, I don't know globally. I, it, there's no mention in here if they measured titers in the remaining CF patients, but that's a good point. All right, thanks. Uh, next. Oh, I have another. I have another. You said this was a quick one. <laughs> yeah, it's a quick one, but it's one that you go, oh, my gosh. This is a report by Carl and colleagues from the University of Michigan, the Lung Transplant and Infectious Disease Team. And this is one of the, the COVID um, submissions. But before you shut your brain off and say, I don't want to hear about COVID, this is a case report um, in which there was documented donor transition of SARS-CoV-2 from a donor who tested initially in the upper respiratory tract as negative. And not only was the recipient infected, but a member of the transplant team, specifically one of the surgeons. And in fact, not that I watch a lot of TV, but Chicago Med had an episode, um, you know, about three or four months ago where, I don't know, the intern or somebody, you know, sort of said, oh, I think this guy came in post-op day 10 and, um, did you measure the BAL? And the lead surgeon was like dissing her and like making her feel stupid. And so she snuck in the lab and sure enough, she did the PCR herself and it was positive. So uh, that patient was, you know, based on reality. So anyway, briefly, the donor was a brain dead donor due to a motor vehicle accident, a closed head injury. And at the time of workup had a chest CT that showed right lower lobe consolidation that was read out initially as either atelectasis or a contusion. And as I said, the upper um, swa the upper respiratory tract 
uh, PCR was negative. They had no history of COVID exposure. Um, they actually underwent bronch and they had some inflammatory changes and some puntate hemorrhages, but no one felt that that was aberrant. They only used the lungs. The other organs were not utilized, I believe, because of uh, injury, abdominal injury. The recipient apparently was, um, other than their organ failure, otherwise healthy. They were negative for COVID, upper nasal passage testing 12 hours ahead. They received standard induction, which is just corticosteroids. And they did okay for, for, for a day and a half. And then on post-op day two, um, they, were, they were noted to have acute RV dysfunction. And then by post-op day three, had a rapid demise with uh, increasing oxygen needs, hypotension, fever, and a chest CT now showed multifocal opacities. Uh, a BAL was performed urgently and it was positive for COVID, but two nasal uh, nasopharyngeal swabs were negative in, these pa in this patient. And by post-up day four, the tracheal NP and obviously and, and was positive and someone decided, hey, there was some donor BAL fluid. Uh, thankfully, they had it stored. They went back and uh, detected uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, the patient did not do well. They developed multi-organ failure. They were treated with remdesivir. Their immunosuppression was adjusted. They were put on ECMO. And uh, unfortunately, uh, support was withdrawn on post-op day 61. And the patient was still positive for COVID on day 60. The surgeon who on the back table was prepping the lungs also became positive. Nobody else in the procurement team. Uh, and they actually did genomic sequencing of all the, the donor specimen as well as the six, um, both the recipient and uh, specimens, including the surgical specimen from the surgeon. And five out of the six showed concurrence in terms of genetic sequence. Uh, the surgical uh, and the, the specimen from uh, the transplant surgeon had one base pair difference, but it looked phylogenetically to be of the same origin. So what does this say? You know, I think our, our you know, our current recommendations are that non-lung donors, you do a, a, an upper respiratory test and you try to do it proximal to the donation within about 24 hours and 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 that's what you follow and then for lung donors you know lower respiratory tracts are, should be sampled the issue pointed out by this paper is the availability of bao fluid which you know is apparently difficult sometimes to have in terms of allocation and getting consistency of results and another recommendation from this team was wearing proper eyewear and n95s uh, during lung transplant regardless of what the COVID result is, which is also an ISHLT recommendation. There was an accompanying editorial by Ricardo Lahoz that from um, that was really nicely stated and you know said that in this case we actually had available lower track samples. And so maybe this should be mandated, whether it's sputum or, or BAL fluid, something that you have more proximal to the lung should be available. But he admitted that there really are a lack of optimal testing. Um, you know, there's no testing algorithm. We don't have a lot of data and suggests that all centers, you know, maybe should be thinking and screening this way. And in terms of having a symptoms assessment, okay, now granted, you're dealing with a deceased donor family, so they may not have seen the, the donor approximately, you know, any exposure symptom assessment, which is always suspect because again, the, the donor's family may not know. And then doing, you know, even with an upper respiratory tract sample, that's great as close to recovery, but, uh, you know, the, the group, the, the, and colleagues, is and this is also with Mary and Michaels, Dave Klassen, Yunos, uh, and Laura Danskar-Izakoff, recommending testing the lungs with a lower, is a lower sample of the respiratory tract. And, you know, until it's really implemented, you know, candidate education should be made to the recipient on the potential risk of 
not knowing versus getting these organs and, and then dying, but also being very careful to tread lightly, not to discard unnecessarily uh, any of lungs. I did look over the, the ST guidance uh, online a couple of days ago. It hasn't been updated since July 7th. Again, the guidance there is just to screen epidemiologically, any contacts, any clinical history of suspected infection, history of vaccination, um, testing both upper and lower tract for lung donors. And they reminded the summary there that there were four cases of donor transmission, all of whom were negative of upper respiratory tract PCRs. Three had proven transmission. One of the three is this case where the recipient died. Uh, the fourth case, the lungs were actually discarded. And there have been six non-lung donor organs from these four, but none developed um, SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, I guess the question is, if you get a lower tract sample, can you get the result back in time before the transplant? I assume so. I mean, PCR yeah. is PCR, it's but quick. like, what do I know? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I yeah. don't, I mean, I just don't imagine that all, that the mucus or anything is, uh, is you know, you're extracting RNA. Yeah. So I, I can't see how it's that much more difficult, but certainly BAL is not going to be easy because not everybody is, is you know, bronching, I, I guess. But um, it's certainly a kind of a interesting it's, story of just how this disease works, because here you had people with upper respiratory lack of, uh, you know, infection. And even in the recipient who passed away, they were negative, negative, negative until when they had overwhelming and consuming disease. Yeah, this is it's just scary because obviously the, the donor wasn't showing any signs of respiratory issues. And we know that that if this can just blossom in a couple of days, yep. you know, and on anybody. So sounds to me like the, the the real guidance has in terms of getting lower respiratory cultures is the real mes message here. I think that's the way yeah. to go. And um, and by the way, that was the message on Chicago Med. <laughs> Those of you interested to know. I can't remember the characters because I don't watch that show enough. I, I stopped watching that years ago. <laughs> it's just too close for to, you know, your home medical center. It's a little spooky. Yeah, I don't know why Chicago is like the epicenter of all these. It's the epicenter of all shows. first response. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's finish up with um, a liver study that is not infection related. It's uh, well, partially because one of the outcomes they looked at, but this is a really um, interesting study with sort of mixed results. I'd have to say um, this is a Casaragi study from two centers in Italy on mesenchymal stromal cell infusion. I'll call them MSC uh, before liver transplantation. And so the concept here is that um, MSCs are multipotent non-hematopoietic cells that are isolated from different tissues, including bone marrow, umbilical cord, and, and adipose. And it's well known in experimental models of transplantation that MSCs control rejection responses and can induce immune tolerance by down-regulating activity of APCs, inhibiting uh, T-cell activation, and particularly um, in the generation of regulatory T-cells. And while this has been shown in the laboratory, there's been mixed results clinically. And I was um, one of the things that I learned from this paper, and Roz, I'd like to hear your comment uh, afterwards, is that this is there's been a number of studies in kidney transplantation um, using MSCs, um, typically autologous MSCs, and trying to um, treat rejection or induce tolerance. 
Whereas in liver, um, there's been only one other study that, that failed. And that study, they gave the patients, did not receive antithymocyclobulin. And there's some, there were some factors with the protocol that led this Ital- Italian group to um, do this current study that's reported. And so two liver transplant centers in Italy enrolled a study of uh, 20 patients that were one-to-one randomized uh, to receive ex vivo expanded bone marrow derived third-party MSC or standard of care. Of course, this was open label and the MSCs were generated from healthy donors expanded and and fully characterized, characterized according to GMP standards at their, at their laboratories. And this was a single infusion given pre-transplant of about one to 2 million cells versus um, standard, standard of care. And both, um, both arms re- received um, antithymocyclobulin, low dose um, from day zero to seven with a short course of steroids and tacrolimus and mycophenolate mofetil at a pretty standard doses. And the main outcome of the study was to look at the safety of MSC infusion. And then um, the, the other outcomes were really uh, immunologic, which includes all of the cell immunophenotyping that I mentioned that were expected to be uh, greater uh, changes in the MSC treated group than the standard standard of care, and so they they randomized uh, well a total of fifty patients were screened and twenty were randomized. There's one patient that unfortunately died uh, soon after the liver transplant um, that couldn't get the follow up, but essentially there was equivalent numbers that were assigned to MSC and no cell therapy. Um, one message is that it, MSC appeared very safe. There wasn't really uh, a difference in serious or non-serious adverse events to year to year one between the standard of care and the MSC group. Um, so that's good to know that an infusion here did not seem to have be uh, unsafe. Um, what did it do? Well, uh, in terms of the circulating leukocyte subsets, there were some changes. Essentially, none of them were statistically significant. And again, this goes back to this being potentially um, not a real finding or just a small sample size where they really couldn't, they need a larger group to detect differences. But what they found was that CD4 uh, T cell percentages were, were low in both groups, and that's probably um, related to the antithymocyclobulin. The regulatory T cells and memory T regs, I think the, uh, there's a, a few figures here to look at. Three, figure three, and figure, figure three has the T reg. Uh, the CD4 subsets with Tregs in there. And you can see that there is a higher Treg and a memory Treg to one to two weeks, six months, and 12 months. Um, but there is a lot of crossover, and so it didn't reach statistical significance. CD8s were very similar across the board, and then they uh, got to immunophenotyping peripheral NK cell subsets because, as we know, NK cells may be uh, toxic, or some of them are uh, immunoregulatory, including the CD56 bright uh, NK cells. And there was a trend towards the bright, uh, regular, we call them regulatory NK cells, uh, CD56 bright, that were, were higher in the um, uh, MSC group. Uh, B cells, uh, no different. When they looked at other, um, other things like rejection didn't, and graft function was pretty similar. They did protocol biopsies on most of the patients at a year. And what they were really looking for was some genes that had been shown in a um, Sanchez-Fueo study previously that signified liver transplant tolerance, just a gene expression panel. 
um, they did not show uh, differences between those um, those particular genes. Um, there were some other differentially expressed genes of unknown uh, significance. So uh, bottom line is I think it's an interesting study. It certainly showed promising that it was safe and that there may be a trend towards increased um, immunoregulatory cell populations in an MSC-treated group. It makes me think, you know, one, they need a larger sample size. Number two, maybe there's a, a, the possibility of giving a higher number of cells than one to two million. They made the point that, that ATG will very likely not will likely lead to um, reduced numbers of these cells if this is given after uh, transplantation. So that's why this was given pre-transplant, but certainly could be considered at a later point after transplant for tolerance induction. We don't know, again, any, any, anything other like clinical outcomes or redu successful reduction in immunosuppression that wasn't part of the protocol. Um, I do think it, it does help lead us to doing more studies with this approach, given some trends here, but certainly um, this is a nice kind of pilot study with this approach, but I think that's all it is at this point. Thank you, Aron Mubrat. Did that so you wouldn't hear me flipping the pages, <laughs> looking at the figures, but I, I want to say that uh, Ramutzi and colleagues published um, a really nice review of this topic at like last year or the year before in, in a journal that we a lot of us don't read called human immunology. And I recall in that, that, you know, the findings of his studies, direct studies were quite small. I mean, they had a couple of patients and then they modified the protocol and did a couple more and they didn't really document tolerance, but they were minimizing immunosuppression and these cells have been utilized in lots of autoimmune diseases as well that seem to have some benefit. But um, and a couple of the larger studies were quoted in that review. But, you know, I think the conclusion of that is, you know, we need more data and, and we need to get out of maybe more pilot studies. But we can't be thinking that this is the solution to to talent necessarily. I was wondering what the thought on this in kidney transplantation is. Um, same, I mean, same sort of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, they've done, you know, one, one, you know, initially, I think the idea was to mitigate like inflammatory injury, you know, the, the innate activation and, and allomune responses of, you know, donor or organ preservation in AKI. And then yeah. there's been a group that was looking at this. And I want to say that this was part the the one study, the, o, you know, O-N-E, group, that multi-center European group, had a whole arm of just doing MSCs and, and seeing if MSCs could be utilized, again, to minimize maintenance and suppression to augment uh, regulatory T-cell populations with the notion that Tregs would be sort of a nat, you know, a natural way to, you know, subdue the uh, allomune response over time. But again, these the numbers of study, the studies there's more of them, but the number of patients is really small. So I don't think it's something that's caught on you know, with abandon. I mean, when you think about the number of tolerance trials in humans, there's only a couple I know uh, going on right now. The Freedom Study, the old Meteor Study, those involved adoptive transfer of, of donor bone marrow, for example. So there's, I guess, yeah. more more to come. Yeah, I think in, in obviously in liver, there's an opportunity, greater opportunity here for immunosuppression withdrawal, although we're, we're just not there yet. But maybe this is one pathway towards doing that that could be explored. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I right, also right. wonder what, oh, uh, Dr. Levitsky, I was just wondering also kind of in a great proportion of patients, uh, especially in dual organ transplants or even in very sensitized heart transplant patients, we use induction with antithymocyte globulin and it's kind of such a cytolytic therapy. So wonder kind of the durability of these, of the T-Rex because you're really lysing a ton of the BNT cells uh, so whether you kind of have to reinfuse these cells for kind of longer term effects on these patients. But the heart transplant patients might be nice population to study because we do routine biopsies on them every couple of weeks in the first year. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens in the tissue profile um, post-infusion in these patients. I mean, that's a good point. I, I think certainly some of these studies, um, though there's only a couple of patients um, per arm, I think we're using low-dose ATG and then switch to non-depletion induction. But most of them, I think, my recollection when I looked at this literature for a book chapter, we're utilizing calcineurin-based therapy, which you know is not a supportive anti-loss of IL-2 is a critical feature of mitigate, minimizing your Treg expansion. So, you know, I think some uh, other studies have utilized mTOR inhibitor, for example, to create the right milieu. So, I, I think it's not ready for prime time. Great animal results, great, you know, but the, the, the two-legged animal is just a challenge, keeps us in business. Well, I'd like to thank the both of you for uh, participating in this month's podcast. It's been great, and uh, we will see you in September. Thank you, everybody. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.